This morning, we begin a new series called Riches of Grace, a study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is clear and beautiful. It is simple yet profound. It is both theological and practical. Now, if you're to sit down and read the book in its entirety, which is something I encourage you to do uh, regularly throughout this series, you would say I, I, it's pretty, pretty neatly organized. The first half, you would probably say, is pretty theological. It has a lot to do with God and who he is and what he's done. And then the second half is pretty practical. It takes that knowledge from the first half and sort of applies it in the second half. This is what the grace of God looks like for us in the world. I might even argue that Paul, in the first half of the book, helps us understand what it means to be a saint, and then in the second half of the book, helps us understand what it means to be a saint in Charleston. This is the good news of what it means to be in Christ. These are the riches of God's grace for us, and, second part of the book, this is how you live in light of that. This is what grace looks like in time and space. This is what grace looks like in bodies. This is how the grace of God changes your life. To the saints who are in Charleston and are faithful in Christ Jesus, a message from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I pray over the next couple of months you will see clearly, for the first time maybe, or for the 500th time perhaps, the riches of God's grace. What is the glory of being a Christian? What is being a Christian all about? What has God done for us in Christ? How do you become a Christian? How do you remain a Christian? How does being a Christian impact your life? As a human, most fundamentally, as a man, a woman, a friend, a spouse, a parent, a student, a teacher, a doctor, an empty nester, an hourly employee at Starbucks. As we study Ephesians, I pray answer to these sorts of questions come into focus. Of course, we'll spend time digging deep into most every passage of the book. I think that's a pretty good preaching strategy, one that we have sort of adopted here at Resurrection, just to preach through books of the Bible, sort of going uh, passage by passage through them. It's a, it's a decent preaching strategy, but even the best preaching strategies have unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences, I think, of just preaching sort of in depth through several passages is that you can begin to look through a microscope at one little passage and, and miss the, the beauty, the grandeur of the whole. I mean, when you receive a letter, this was a letter after all, written to real people in a real place, at a real moment in history. When you receive a letter right now, how do you read that letter? Before you parse the words, which if you're an overthinker, you might parse every word of the letter, right? But before you parse the words and look at each line, you read the whole letter. You interpret the words in light of the sentences, the sentences in light of the paragraphs, and the paragraphs in light of the whole. So an encouragement to us as we work through this book, don't miss the painting in the brush strokes. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Now, of course, there are riches forevermore in the lines of the text. This is no ordinary book. These words are alive. Of course, when you analyze a great painting, you want to consider the brush strokes. Of course, a forest is made up of thousands of beautiful trees. 
Of course there are riches forevermore in every line of the text. But let's not miss the whole, the symphony of glory that is Ephesians, a symphony that resounds with the sound of grace. The title of this series is Riches of Grace, and the title of this sermon is To the Saints in Charleston. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just read verses 1 through 14 together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The opening salvo of this letter is both easy and difficult to preach. It's easy because as we've just seen, it is beautiful. It's full of excellent theological truth. In Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing. Let's talk about them. It's quite simple. But it's difficult because it doesn't lend itself clearly to an outline as so much of the rest of the epistle does. Paul writes as if he is just swept up into glory. He just goes and goes and goes and goes. The bulk of the passage that we just read is one long run-on sentence in Greek. It's more of a prayer of praise than a line of logic. It's a helpful reminder that for Paul and for the biblical writers, theology is doxology. What does that mean, theology is Doxology. It simply means that thinking about God should lead us to the worship of God. Thinking about God should lead us to the worship of God. The end of theological discussion is not the same thing as the end of political discussion or even ideological discussions. The end of theological discussion, if done rightly, is truth, goodness, and beauty. It's the Lord God himself. That as Paul is thinking about who God is and what God's done, he is led to worship. Thinking about God should lead us to worship. Thinking about God should not make us abrasive, but kind. Should not make us angry, but gentle. Should not lead us to anxiety, but should lead us to thanksgiving. Thinking about God should lead us to worship. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. 
Ephesus is a city today in modern-day Turkey. In Paul's day, it was a thriving city, very much a Roman city, a center for pagan worship, the home of the temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Suffice to say, Ephesus was not an easy place to be a saint, but by the grace of God, it is a place where it is possible, like every place under the sun, to be a saint. So who are the saints in Ephesus? Are those like the, uh, the forerunners to the monastic orders, right? Are they the, the people who are really, really holy, the people who uh, cloister themselves off from the world? No, the saints in Ephesus are the whole church in Ephesus. The saints in Ephesus are all the Christians in Ephesus. Paul is not writing to an elite group of Christians who fast a lot, who do all sorts of spiritual disciplines. Paul is writing to ordinary Christians because imperfect people with a propensity to sin are saints if they are faithful in Jesus Christ. Now, though the members of the church, though the Christians in Ephesus certainly sin, they are certainly not perfect, Paul doesn't address his letter to the sinners in Ephesus. He writes to the saints who are in Ephesus, even the church of Corinth, a church we might look at in extended detail in the fall. Even the church of Corinth, who is mired in all sorts of sin and problems and sexual sin and disunity and heresy slipping in and all these problems in the church, Paul opens his letter to the church of Jesus Christ who are called saints. Perhaps we need to be reminded who we are. This letter is not written to a bunch of failures in whom God is profoundly disappointed. This letter is written to saints in whom God delights. This letter is not written to a bunch of failures in whom God is profoundly disappointed. It's written to saints in whom the Lord God Delights. In this initial outburst of praise, the explosion of exaltation at the beginning of the letter, we get a glimpse of the riches of God's grace for his saints. I just want to say three quick things about the riches of God's grace for us this morning. First, God pursues us. In his grace, God pursues us. Second, through his grace, God saves us. God pursues us. God saves us. And third, God keeps us. God keeps us. Oh, the grace of God that pursues us. Oh, the grace of God that saves us. Oh, the grace of God that keeps us. Let us wonder this morning together at the riches of God's grace. Look with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I have a question for you. How do you find God? How do you find God? Can you track him down with your senses? See him? Hear him? smell him, look for his footprints in the sand maybe, 
Could you make a reality TV show on discovery like tracking down Bigfoot and create all sorts of technology that'll help you catch this sensory data that will lead you to find God? No, of course not. He's not here in physical form on the earth right now. There is such a chasm between us and him, our physical senses, between the creature and the creator that we can't just find God with our physical senses. Can you find God with your intellectual efforts? Can you be smart enough to come up with an algorithm that somehow leads you to God? Can you be logical enough and smart enough that you sort of string together enough proofs that, that at the end of those proofs you've created this intellectual discovery of God? No, God is transcendent. Even the most brilliant mind in the world is finite. It has a beginning and an end. Even the most brilliant mind in the world is still a created mind. And it cannot bridge that gap between creature and creator. It cannot jump from the imminence to the transcendent. We cannot conceive of a God so great as God on our own. You can't find God with your senses. You can't find God with intellectual efforts. What about with your heart, your soul, whatever you want to talk about, this feeling thing? Can you, can you find him with your heart if you're sincere enough? Well, no. Our hearts are fickle because they are riddled with sin. Our feelings can sometimes be helpful. But from experience, our feelings can't always be trusted. Sometimes I feel like someone's upset with me and they're not. Sometimes I feel like someone's not upset with me and they are. Sometimes I feel like I did the right thing and I did not. Sometimes I feel like I did not do the right thing and I actually did. We can't trust our hearts because they are riddled with sin. I think sometimes we can over-speak negatively about emotions. Sometimes they can be helpful. Sometimes they can be true. After all, I would rather us sing and preach and listen with emotion than just dryly. But we can't feel our way to the knowledge of God. We can't feel our way into figuring out who God is. Well, I feel like God is filling the thing. We can't do that. We can't find God with our senses. We can't find God with our brains. And we can't find God with our hearts. So the only way to know a God we cannot find would be if that God finds us. The only way we could know this God who is so far above and better and greater and beyond and transcendent is that if some way that transcendent God made himself known to us. And this is the story of the Bible, the unknowable God making himself known. He does it early what through his word, through a promise that is then believed. He speaks and he is known. He is who he is. He reveals himself to Israel by his word and they respond by faith. He speaks and he is known. He is known by his revelation. Oh, the scriptures reach their climax in the incarnation. When the word becomes what? Flesh and dwells among us. When the creator comes to live among the created. We know God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we know of Jesus Christ through the testimony of holy scriptures. He himself says, I am the one to whom the scriptures point. How do you find God? Well, God finds us. I was thinking this week about how sort of how, who God is informs 
our experience of him. And uh, I had a simple question that I would ask, when did God begin to love you? Was it when you uh, believed the gospel? Uh, was it when you finally kicked that one sin that you can't seem to kick? <laughs> uh, was it when you cried out to him at church camp that one time? Uh, was it when you were baptized? Like, when did God begin to love you? And I, I think the answer, if we're gonna think biblically and theologically about it, I think the answer is he did not. He did not begin to love you. And he will never stop loving you. The love of God has no ending because the love of God has no beginning. And here the apostle Paul, as he extols the riches of God's grace, goes back before the beginning. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Verse 5. That God's love for you existed before the sun and moon and stars. Paul is extolling this God who has chosen to make himself known to us before the foundations of the world. That in love he predestined us for adoption. Now that word predestination, for whatever reason, has caused some consternation amongst folks. But I would just remind us this morning that it is a biblical term. It's a term we ought not be ashamed of. Orthodox Christians, the shared faith across time and space, affirm and have affirmed the doctrine of predestination to be biblical. Now, there is certainly division within the church as to the how of predestination, Perhaps there's some division as to the why of predestination, but there is not division as to the what of predestination. And the reality of predestination simply teaches us that God pursues us long before we pursue him. How can we pursue a God we cannot find? How can we know a God we cannot know unless that God has willed and desired that we come to know him? I'm not gonna go on an extensive discussion here. I don't think it's helpful because to me, predestination is less of a math problem and more of a poem. I don't know that we figure it out as much as we stand in all of it. I think good doctrine is true, but I also think good doctrine is beautiful. And I think it is true that God has loved us before we loved him. It's beautiful that God has loved us before we love him. It's important to understand that we do not Start this thing. <laughs> Our will is not the initiator. Before there was even matter, you mattered to God. Before you were even born, God had a plan for you to be born again. Oh, we praise God for his glorious grace that pursues us. His glorious grace that finds us. And his glorious grace, the second thing we'll say, that saves us. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
as Paul continues his holy ramblings, he has spoken of predestination, he has spoken of adoption, and here he speaks of redemption, he speaks of forgiveness, and he speaks of the will of God. How has God pursued us? How does he adopt us into the family as sons and daughters? How does he redeem us? The answer is simple, really. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. Through his blood, Paul says, we have redemption and forgiveness. Through his blood. Meaning through his death. In the death of Christ, the will of God is being accomplished. In his blood, our sins are being paid for and we are being forgiven. Paul speaks of having forgiveness through his blood. Paul speaks of us being redeemed through his blood. In his blood, we are being made new or redeemed. In his death, Christ is acting in such a way as to forgive us and redeem us because his death is our death. He is dying in our place that he might rise to give us new life. For us men and our salvation as we confessed in the creed, he came to earth. But this is not for us and our salvation alone. As Paul is enraptured in glory, he speaks of God's plan for all things. This is the plan of God for the fullness of time, to make all things right. At the cross, through his blood, God is forgiving us. He's redeeming us. He is adopting us. He is reconciling us. But not only us, but all of creation. That the same sin that has riddled our hearts is the sin that riddles all of creation. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, God is acting decisively, to defeat it once and for all. So God is reconciling us to him individually and God is yet reconciling all things to himself. God is saving both us and all of creation from sin. Paul is here moved to worship as he reflects on our great God who saves us by his Grace To be saved by grace means to be saved by God apart from anything we do. It means to be saved apart from anything that we bring to the table. We cannot find God, but by grace, God finds us. We cannot save ourselves, but in his grace, God has saved us. This is why Paul just says, oh, he has lavished his grace upon us. Oh, we are swimming in the riches of his grace. With his grace, in his grace, through his grace, by his grace, God finds us. And with that extravagant grace, he saves us. Now, I'm using that term saved as a catch-all for forgiveness, redemption, adoption, all these sorts of things. But I confess, I don't love the term because in our day, it is so associated with a, a mechanical way of thinking about our relationship with God. Pray a prayer. Get saved. Get out of hell free and go on your merry way. But when the Bible speaks of God saving us, it is much richer than just being snapped from the fires of hell one day. Like, yes, that is a huge component, a, a huge part of it, but our sins are forgiven. We're adopted in the family of God. Our lives are redeemed. Our lives are used for his purposes, not just in that day, but in this day. 
God has saved us. His salvation is extravagant for us and for the whole world. His saving work changes everything about our lives. In grace, God has pursued us, and by grace, God has saved us. And third and finally, through grace, God keeps us. Through grace, God keeps us. Look with me in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's the word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here is how I think some of us try to live the Christian life. You're not a Christian. Uh, you hear the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, comes to earth. He lives a perfect life. He dies in your place. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He calls all people everywhere to believe that through believing in his name, you can be saved. You hear that message and you believe. You hear a message of grace and forgiveness, that God will forgive you of all your sins, that God will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, that God will wipe your slate completely clean, that God will make you completely new. He will give you a brand new start. You hear that message and you are moved by its power and you are moved by its beauty as so many millions have been. You believe the message, but at some point, at some point, even imperceptibly, somewhere along the line, you stop believing it. We start thinking about God's grace less and we start thinking about ourselves more. We start thinking about our righteousness or we start thinking about our complete lack of righteousness. Slowly but surely, you may begin to think that it's your job to finish what God started. Some of you begin to think your righteousness can save you. You become proud and your good works. But others of you fall off the wagon on the other side. You look at your sin and you think, there's no way God still loves me. There is no way I'm actually a Christian. There's no way I can know God and still have this stuff in my life that I gotta get it together, I gotta work harder, I gotta be more, I gotta do better. I, I, I. But your righteousness will not save you and your sins will not damn you if you trust in Christ. Friends, we don't begin the Christian life and by grace and end it with our best efforts. It's God's grace from before it started. It's God's grace when it starts. It's God's grace as we live it and it's God's grace as we end it. God pursues us. God saves us and God keeps us. We persist not just by works, but by faith. When you believed in Jesus, Paul here says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance that is yours in Christ. Paul is speaking of an inheritance. What is that inheritance that he speaks of? Well, I the very least, it's the greatest thing, the greatest person of all, it's God himself. 
The Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us as a guarantee that God will never not dwell with us. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us as a guarantee that God will finish the work that he has started. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us so that we may know that God is the one active in our lives, sanctifying us and shaping us and holding us. It's less a matter of us holding on to God, though we do, but more foundationally, God holds on to us, and we just respond to that, holding with our own sort of flailing and holding and trying to hold as the grace of God pulls us through life. Like, this means that we will finish the race by his grace. It doesn't mean we'll sprint through the finish line. It might mean that God is dragging us, kicking and screaming to the end, but it means that we will not be on our own. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us because this is the plan of God, that the creature might dwell with the creator through the work of Jesus Christ, the Son. The whole Christian life is the work of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings us into the family of God the Father through the work of Christ, the Son. Our spiritual journey from before it begins till after it ends, from our perspective, is held in the hands of the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your future, worship team, I am finished. Your inheritance is secure. It's guaranteed by God himself to the praise of his glory. So to the saints in Charleston, let us glory in the grace of God Together, we begin our study of this majestic letter this morning in awe of God's grace, his pursuing, his saving, and his keeping grace that has been lavished upon us. Just like the Apostle Paul, that grace leads us to worship. Over the next several weeks, we will plumb the depths of God's grace We will explore together the riches of his grace, who we are in Christ, who Christ is for us, what it means to be in Christ, and then we'll think about how all that impacts our everyday lives. What does the grace of God matter to me on a Tuesday at 11 a.m., on a Friday at 11.30 p.m., on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. when I'm deciding what I'm going to do with the rest of my morning and all points in between. Over the coming weeks, I pray that we will marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, who he is for us. I pray we would cling to him, our only hope in life and death. I pray that we would hide ourselves in Christ, that in the words of the hymn, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray. Father, let us hide ourselves in you. Let the riches of your grace uh, shower down on us. May we, over these next several weeks, bask in your glory and contemplate your grace. May we experience your grace. May it not just be an intellectual exercise, but a, a spiritual one. And any good spiritual exercise is, is in some sense a physical exercise. So help us be moved by your grace. Be moved by your grace that our lives might change. That we may find joy where we've been joyless. That we may find hope where we've been hopeless. That we might, may find your presence and your company where we've been lonely. Oh, Father, the riches of your grace are applied to our lives in 10,000 ways. And I pray that we would experience so many of them in the coming weeks. We worship you who has saved us, who has found us, and who will keep us to the end.